One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm Matt Chorley. This is Politics Without the Boring Bits. Today, what is your MP for? Are they there for you to use and abuse, as some of our focus group participants think? Are they there to pass laws or just sort out your many problems? We'll hear from MPs dealing with neighbour disputes, hedge rows, and even someone who complained they'd been banned from their local GP, and then it turned out they tried to attack their local GP with a blunt instrument. So we'll ask, should you stop annoying your MP? Plus, the columnists today, Jane Merrick and James Marriott, on whether we're all getting more stupid. And, of course, we'll look back on what we've learned this week. And don't forget, if you like what you hear on the podcast, you can join me live on Times Radio for Politics Without the Boring Bits on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app for free. It's Politics Without the Boring Bits, weekdays from 10. Right, as we always do on a Friday, let's take a look at what we learned this week. We learned what Keir Starmer thought about his £28 billion Green Pledge on Monday. We're going to need investment. That's where the £28 billion comes in, that investment that's desperately needed. We learned what Keir Starmer thought about his £28 billion Green Pledge on Thursday. We won't reach the £28 billion, which is effectively stood down. His relationship with the £28 billion really does make him the Craig David of politics. We make love by Wednesday, and on Thursday and Friday and Saturday we chill on Sunday. As a mental image, we learned that Rishi Sunak thinks he can turn things around by posing with a giant flip chart. I wanted to take you back to the context that we found ourselves in. Although that might just have been a normal-sized notepad. We learned the political philosophy of Holly Valance. Everyone starts off as a lefty and then wakes up at some point after you start either making money, working, trying to run a business, trying to buy a home, and then realises what crap ideas they all are. And then you go to the right. And then we learned her 51-year-old husband had defected from the Tories to Labour. We learned what Tory MP Steve Bryan thought of Liz Truss's latest comeback. If it was me and I'd been the shortest-lived British Prime Minister in history, I'd struggle to get out in the morning, let alone be launching new political campaigns. We learned that while I was outside number 10, the Cabinet didn't want to play our hugely popular quiz, Can You Get to Number 10? Uh, let me find the home question. James Cleverly, what's the southernmost point of the UK? And we learned who had written the best political book by a non-parliamentarian. And the winner is Matt Jordan.
And of course, if you want to read the award-winning book, Planes, Trains and Toilet Doors, 50 Places That Change British Politics, it is available from all good and indeed bad bookshops. Now, this. The Columnists. Yes, it's a Friday, so we're joined by James Marriott. I was hunched on my bedroom floor with my laptop frantically battering away at my column. And Indian Art's not here this week, so we've got Policy Editor of the Eye, Jane Merrick. Hello, Jane. Hello. I was thinking we could have had a jingle, JM, JM. Boop, boop, ba doop, boop. That's what I thought. JM, JM. Yeah. Already performed boop, it. Boop, boop, boop. I'll <laughs> be stuck in your head for the rest of the day. Uh, let's... <laughs> Uh, basically, I'm I'm completely losing the plot uh, today. But luck, that's fine because I'm not the president of the United States of America. Uh, Joe Biden overnight angrily angrily rejecting this special counsel's report that said his memory was so bad uh, that he couldn't be put on trial. He couldn't remember when his son died or when his first term as vice president ended. I know there's some attention paid to some language in the report about my recollection of events. There's even reference that I don't remember when my son died. How in the hell dare he raise that? Frankly, when I was asked the question, I thought to myself, it wasn't any of their damn business. I don't need anyone. I don't need anyone to remind me when he passed away or passed away. One of the reasons you were not charged is because, in his description, you are a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. I'm well-meaning, and I'm an elderly man, and I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been president, and I put this country back on its feet. I don't need his recommendation. It's How totally bad is your memory, and can you continue as president? My memory is so bad, I let you speak. Wow. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty bad. Uh, um, is, this a, is this going to become a problem, do you think, Jay? It is already a bit of a problem, isn't it? I mean, this week he's mixed up Angela Merkel with Helmut Kohl, um, Mitterrand with Macron, and he called the president of Mexico Sisi, who is obviously the Egyptian president. So it's not ideal. I mean, I don't think it's his age that's a problem. I think you can have your full faculties at 80. We shouldn't be a kind of ageist society. But clearly he has trouble it's not just remembering things, but sort of confusing things. I mean, he said in his extraordinary press conference last night that, you know, how would I have done all these amazing things like the Inflation Reduction Act if I had a bad memory? I mean, you don't need a good memory to do all those things. It's, it's recall. And I think what's also slightly concerning is that we're in an increasingly sort of unstable world. There's a threat of Iran, China, Russia. And do you really want the leader of the free world to be someone who is apparently not in full um, control of his faculty? So it's a concern. But then on the other hand, the alternative is Donald Trump, who similarly seems to have trouble with his um, forming work, forming sentences. So, yeah, it's not ideal at all. In fact, I think we've got another clip of him getting his geography muddled up. Let's take a listen. As you know, initially, the president of Mexico, Sisi, did not want to open up the gate to allow humanitarian material to get in. I talked to him. So he meant El Sisi of Egypt there, not Mexico, which is a, a completely different border. Um, James, you sort of one of the arguments he's put forward, Joe Biden, he's the only person who can beat Donald Trump because he has beaten him before. You wonder if there is an opportunity or there might be a moment that comes where someone says, well, someone else has to be the Democratic candidate. Yeah, I mean... 
I think we're all kind of praying that will happen. Obviously, the mechanism of getting an American president out of office is much more difficult than you know getting rid of a prime minister. We get we get a rich prime minister. You know, if he was a Conservative Party leader, he'd be gone. You know, years ago, he'd been stabbed in the back a hundred times. But you know, to you know invoke the Twenty Fifth Amendment for um, you know if he's viewed as incapacitated, has to go through the cabinet, has to get through both houses of Congress. It's a bit of an uphill struggle, or he resigns, and who can you know who's who is the person who's capable of making him resign? I think we thought that the person you know who might whose decision making he relied on was Jill Biden, and I, you know there was a moment I think it was um, early last early last year where we kind of learned that she was back on board with the idea that he should run for re-election, and I guess we're just kind of hoping that someone close to him is watching this and thinking really have to you know, intervene and say, don't it, do this. Because it's not just about what he's like in October, November. It's what he's like in five years' time. Yeah, I mean, it's sort the of... Time. And the really, the really... I did a very... I was doing a very scary thing last night, actually, going back and watching some interviews with Joe Biden from about 2016. And he is... The difference is really, really alarmingly yeah, striking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he's articulate. He's on top of really, you know, granular detail, just bringing up policies, explaining policies, arguing back. It's... You really, it really throws the fact that there has been a decline into sharp relief, and that presumably is only going to continue. I mean, it's is. I mean, it's always worth remembering that he's eighty-one now. He that Bill Clinton, who was president thirty years ago, is younger than Joe Biden now. Um, and uh, yeah, I just wonder whether whether. But then you know, Donald Trump's quite old as well. Should we have a Should we have a limit? Should there be a limit? Uh, should there be a retirement age for politicians, Jane? I don't think there should. I mean, he's he's eighty, isn't he? My dad is eighty. You know, very full, you know, full fighting fit, and has got an amazing memory. I think it's more about your ability, your mental ability. The problem that the Democrats have is they don't have a great vice president in Kamala Harris. I mean, she was mm. full of promise. I think when when she first was first appointed, but her approval ratings have been plummeting. Um, for the last four years, and it's really difficult. I think it's telling that they don't have someone waiting in the wings who would be a natural replacement if he did, as James says, decides to resign. So I think that's the issue: is that you know what what comes next, mm. and can that person beat Donald Trump? And as you say, I think Biden is is on his game the only person who can beat Donald Trump. The risk is he won't be on his game come November. I suppose that's so right, because if you look sort of back over, you know, democratic politics, you obviously was dominated by Obama, then it was all Hillary Clinton, and then they revert back to, you know, the same, essentially the same three people, Obama, Clinton, uh, Hillary Clinton, and Biden, have sort of dominated, what, the last 10, 15, Yeah, they all kind of belong to that Obama a... era. Although, I mean, I have to say, you know, the worse Biden gets, the kind of lower the bar for the person who would be better at beating Donald Trump than him becomes. I think we're at that point, you know, that... You know, the kind of, you just need a kind of standard, competent-looking Democrat, and that's going to be better than Biden, who really, you know, looks like a liability now. And I think also, it's also because there's nothing that Donald Trump would love more than all of this, you know, quite personal, nasty... Yeah, he loves it. And then if you get someone who's life. at least mentally competent, then you can have them pointing out that Donald Trump himself is kind of, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. losing his faculties a bit, which is something that's obviously impossible he kept, for Biden. He kept muddling up Nikki Haley with... Nikki Haley and um, Nancy Pelosi was that's right. the re recent Trump one. But obviously... 
Biden can't go around mocking Trump for that because it immediately bounces back <laughs> oh, onto God, him. Imagine Joe Biden trying to remember who it was that Donald, <laughs> Donald Trump, Trump got mixed confused up. about. Deba- if those debates happen, they're going to be truly excruciating experience. I think that we might, we might call a circular conversation. Yeah. Um, uh, well, we'll see what happens. I mean, it's it's uh, it's pretty extraordinary, that, but uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, but um, I want to talk to you about what you think an MP is for. Uh, we're going to talk about this uh, at our big thing in a minute, but... Um, Quite keen to get your reflections on on this. This is uh, the Conservative MP Charles Walker talking us through what's in his inbox. We spend a lot of time on neighbour disputes. He said, she said. We spend a lot of time on hedge cutting and tree polliding, uh, parking tickets and parking fines. Um, and our job is to act as legislators. That's the stuff I should be dealing with, not dealing with people who don't like the way their workmen have laid tarmac in their driveway. I have... Parents write to me because they don't like the fact that a head teacher has had to discipline their child. Um, I, we have a whole section of society that refuses point blank now to take responsibility for their own actions and those that they are responsible for as well. Is What these people do is they divert scarce resource from the people that really, really do need it. And that should concern us all. GPs get in touch, you know, the problem they have with no-shows because people just can't be bothered to turn up. People who perhaps have a minor football injury and instead of getting a friend drive them to their doctor's surgery, call an ambulance. And we don't call this out and we need to start calling it out. It was really interesting, this, Jane. And I just wanted, it felt like we were, and we'll have the full conversation a bit later, but I felt like we were drifting into, is there something wrong with society? that we sort of complain about everything the sort of the ang- you know the sort of me me meanness is it the you know social medianess of you know we are the star was it with main character energy everyone has main character energy and thinks that everyone is there to sort out their stuff all the time it's really interesting actually i think i agree with him that you know mps should be there to a to represent us as constituents but like for the for the important things and also to hold the government to account they shouldn't be there to settle neighbors disputes and it's a really interesting point i mean sort of you know a decade ago more than a decade ago we were talking about the big society david cameron's big society we were all having to lump in and you know do everything and i feel like we've possibly lost that slightly maybe it's because of the pandemic and there was obviously we were all told what to do and we had to kind of let the government take over and control our lives for several months and so we couldn't you know literally go for a, a walk and that was it and i think i think he's got a really good point there that we are we're not really taking enough responsibility for our own lives i mean obviously the gp issue is a slightly different issue because there's there's clearly a problem with access to appointments and and the nhs waiting list and so on but i think there is a there is a a really good central point there that we need to be a little bit more kind of self-reliant and not have to kind of depend on the state and i'm not talking you know that we need to be in massively small state we need the state there to protect the vulnerable to teach our children to, to look after us when we're sick but for crying out loud you know sort it out with your neighbor about your hedge and if you can't then then go to the council you don't need to to go to your mp what do you think, James? Yeah, well, I think probably an interesting factor in this is the kind of loss of status of MPs. You know, I think once upon a time, if an MP deigned to, you know, visit their local constituency, which for some people they did really very rarely, you know, back in the kind of early early part of the 20th century, you know, the red carpet was rolled out, they shook a few hands and everyone was really awed that the local MP had dropped by. And 
you know, I think people expect a lot more from their MP in terms of kind of local casework now than they once did. And I think some of that is to do with the fact that MPs now seem to us like less impressive figures. We spend a lot of time mocking them and, you know, we kind of perhaps think that it's more of our right to kind of prey on their time and we forget that these are people with, you know, important jobs in Parliament. You know, in the 19th century, you know, how many of, you know, how many people like, Glad- how often was Gladstone down at his constituency? You know, very rarely. It yeah. was almost a kind of nominal thing and people would switch around constituencies, you know, right across the country, you know, if they needed a seat. And that's obviously probably too far at the other end of the spectrum, but we've slightly lost, you know, I think we've now veered back too much of the other way and we're kind of expecting MPs to be social workers and we have to remember that, you know, they're legislators really. When it goes on, the Burkean conversation. Um, Edmund Burke, who said that we, you know, you're not a delegate there to, to, you know, carry out a referendum on your cons- you know, constituents' votes. You're there to do the right thing. Yeah, you know, they elect you. You go and do what you're supposed to be doing. In uh... yeah, so there's a good. I think we're kind of losing sight of that a bit. Uh, and also, you know, as uh, you know, I think uh, Charles Walker goes on to say, we do have local councillors. That is what they are elected for. But everyone sort of go, you know, MPs are more high profile, particularly yeah, no social media. So. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so, um, but yeah, it's just about. I mean, the stories we've got more of them. More, more stories of mad things that people have asked their uh, their um, local MPs to uh, to do. We'll do uh, some more of those in our big thing. Right, let's turn our attention now to potentially the next Tory leader. That's what all the. Polls and pundits are to be believed. Kemi Badenoch, uh, the currently the Business and Trade Secretary, says she doesn't really like giving personal interviews, but she's done a rare one with Janice Turner for this weekend's uh, edition of The Times. And Janice joins us now. Hi, Janice. Good morning, Matt. How did you find her? I've, uh, the, the, the piece is fascinating, not least because at what point did you remember that you had, in fact, met before? Well, actually, she reminded me of that some time ago. Um... Uh, she had a different surname then. And also, this was a roundtable interview uh, that I conducted in 2010 for Grazia magazine of a whole bunch of women candidates who were standing. And, you know, it was a it was a 45 minute discussion of lots with lots of people. It was me. It was her who remembered that I'd done it. Oh, so you're more famous than her. Uh, did, you obviously <laughs> didn't pick her out as a potential future Tory leader. Take us through the conversation that you had with her. And did you did you feel like you learned more about someone who gets talked up far more than she talks herself, I'd say. Yes, she is, well, what can I say? Very, very intelligent woman. Um, She has an interesting mindset, which is, I think it comes from her background in computing, actually. She's somebody who doesn't kind of spout um, the usual shibboleths or cliches. She genuinely kind of, if you ask her a question, she pulls it apart and then gives a kind of bespoke answer, which, which is often quite fresh and... Um, she's thought about it in the moment. I think that's very interesting. Um, her backstory is absolutely extraordinary. And I w- as I was driving to her constituency home, which is in very leafy Saffron Walden, I was just struck by how, um, you know, here we have a black woman um, who grew up in Africa, is now the MP for a constituency um, with a 25,000 uh, Tory majority. Isn't that an amazing change in our life? in our lifespan of our country. And it's just not, I mean, it was interesting, and you, you hear this sometimes when sort of Rishi Sunak talks about when he was sort of first selected in a very similar sort of rural seat in Yorkshire. Mm. Sort of at the fringes, of, you know, with Kemi, Kemi, it seemed to have been a lot of, you're too urban for this area or whatever. Yes. Which is, you know, as you point out, essentially code for being black. But actually that seems to have passed now. It's just not, not an issue. 
No, I, and she um, did make the point, actually, I didn't put it in. When she did stand in a, quotes, urban seat, when she stood in um, Dulwich and West Norwood in 2010 against Tessa Jowell, um, she said, I worked that seat to the bone and I came third. So, you know, we are a more surprising country than we give ourselves credit for. And I think Kemi Badenoch, Badenoch, actually, Badenoch, must say Badenoch, is a, um, is a proof of that. Uh, I want to ask you in a minute about her um, feud with Nadine Doris because it's, mm. bu- it's brilliant. Um, uh, what do you make of her, James? As yeah, a- I mean, I thought it was a brilliant interview. I think there were kind of two I things... I mean, what do you mean of Janice? I mean, what do you mean of <laughs> yeah, Kemi? Obviously, we all obviously love Janice. Janice. We all love Janice, And she's a big part of this, sir. Shut up, Matt. And, yeah, I think sort of two themes st- stuck out at it from me. One is that she's obviously a very impressive, very charismatic person. Anyone who's seen her speak, you know, knows what a kind of forceful, ad hoc speaker she is. The, the kind of note of caution for me in that interview was the single-mindedness, the stubbornness, she talks in the piece about how she sees that she has got her character traits from her mother who never changed her mind. Yes. And I think that is always a slightly alarm. I mean, it can get you so far in politics, but the closer you get to the top, the more alarming, you know, that, that trait can become, I think. It's a little bit Liz Trust, Jane. Yeah, but I think that I think that doesn't really do enough credit. It's a re- it's a really interesting interview, and I think it's it's fascinating that she kind of she ducks the leadership question, Obviously. but the fact that she is doing the interview, a very profile interview, is very leadershipy in itself. Like she doesn't need to say anything else. So that's one thing. I mean, when I've met her, I just find her so sharp and impressive. You kind of have to have your A game. She reminds me a little bit of Rachel Reeves, actually. That you know she's thinking so far ahead. But what I what would I, I would agree with Janice and also James is that it's interesting that she sort of she doesn't give politicians answers she gives quite original answers, and I wonder whether that would kind of be her undoing in a leadership contest where you kind of have to you do have to sort of slightly stay in the track and and not be too original. Although Boris Johnson didn't do that and he managed to win, but then Boris was Boris, so it would be interesting. I mean, she could be. In, in opposition, if there is a leadership contest after the election and Rishi goes and, you know, loses the election, is she the kind of person that, that the Tory party would want in opposition who is original, who can fight back and, you know, come back in 2028? And I think possibly yes, because she's sort of refreshing and that's, that may be what the party is looking for to kind of get back and, and beat, and beat mm. Labour again. I don't know, but I think it's, she's incredibly impressive. It's that thing, isn't it, of, like, what's your reaction when you see someone on, on the telly? Do you turn it up or do you, you know, turn it off? And Boris Johnson had that turn it up thing, you know, as does Donald Trump, in a way that, bluntly, Keir Starmer, you know, you know turn it up. You know, and if, if particularly in opposition, where just people taking the, any notice of you is the key test, yeah. she's definitely got that thing. She speaks... I suppose this goes back to the point you're making, Janice. She she approaches questions by trying to say an original thing rather than the obvious thing. Take us through um, the the feud with, with Nadine Doris. Well, I think it can be said uh, uh, clearly that there is no love lost. Um, <laughs> the, uh, she's absolutely incandescent, I would say, about the plot, which is Nadine Doris' bonkers book. Uh, in which um, Kemi is portrayed as this kind of pawn being moved around the political chessboard by powerful men. Um, And also uh, Nadine is incredibly furious that um, Kemi resigned and was one of the people who brought down Boris Johnson. Um, So she just 
cannot stand her. I think there is, I think there is a, a massive beef there, and quite understandably, really. I mean, it is very, very patronising to Kemi, who is a is an original thinker and is incredibly clever, um, to be told that she is just kind of, you know, a glove puppet for somebody like Michael Gove, who I think has been a mentor, and they've fallen out as well. As I, as we see in the interview, um, but uh, she's her own woman. And actually, you know, Michael Gove, uh, for all of his faults, um, is uh, is a one of the great survivors of politics, and has been involved in some of the Tory party's successes over the last few years. So, if, if you are going to take advice and and be mentored by someone, it's probably not a terrible thing. I mean, obviously, his his actual success in leadership contests themselves have not been brilliant. But in terms of being a successful minister, surviving in politics, having a personality that sounds like you're engaging with interview, you know, that's all quite quite useful, Jeff. Yeah, and I think you can imagine that, I mean, they're both obviously thinkers and, you know, smart people. And you can see there's probably a synergy between them there as well. Jane Merrick from The Eye, along with James Marriott from The Times and Janice Turner. And Janice Turner's interview with Kemi Badenot, you can read online right now. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to the times.co.uk. Up next, what is your MP4? The Big Thing. So I utilise and uh, abuse my local MP, actually. And our job is to act as legislators. That's the stuff I should be dealing with, not dealing with people who don't like the way their workmen have laid tarmac. You have to do what I say sort of thing in some of the cases. We had an entire team of seven of us working seven days a week. I mean, the workload is relentless. I look at them as, as like a citizen advised bureau. So what is your MP Four. It's a Friday, so Parliament is in recess. MPs will be back in their constituencies, meeting local voters and helping them with their problems. When I was in Parliament this week, some MPs told me that doing all that casework can be the most rewarding part of the job. But is it getting out of hand? Are we using and abusing our members of Parliament? Treating them as a one-stop shop to deal with hedge disputes, planning rows, parking tickets and classroom conflicts. And does that mean they don't have enough time to focus on the other, perhaps more important part of their job, passing better laws? It's an issue which has come up a lot in the exit interviews I've been doing with MPs of all parties who are standing down at the next election. So we'll hear from some of them and from some of those people who work with MPs on the casework and the huge increase in their workload. First, here's what happened when we asked our monthly Times Radio focus group what they think an MP is for. In the chair for the focus group, Tom Lubbock from JL Partners. Think about your local MP. So we've all got a local MP. What do you think they do or what should they be doing? Are they, are they, are they there to sort out problems for you and your, your community or are they there, do you think, just to pass laws? So I think that they, they are there to help us. They're there to uh, champion our cause and make sure that we get the required funding uh, uh, whilst dealing with the uh, micro issues or the personal issues of their constituents. I look at them as as like a citizen advised bureau Mm. um, for um, your local community where you would go um, to that as the hierarchy um, to to get change um, within your local community, you know, whatever that might be, you know, 
funding or um, housing, you know, things like that? Um, I think they're there to do um, to work for, for the people in the community. I email my MP quite often if I'm not happy with um, services and provisions that the local authority provide. And then they email and, and, and liaise and get back to me. That's when I've had no joy with the local authority. So I okay. utilise and uh, abuse my local MP, actually. No, yeah, uh, I think locally probably should be higher up the agenda than going to London to vote on things. So that was the view of Real Voters in our most recent Times Radio focus group. They were all people who voted Conservative in 2019. Now say they're backing Labour. And you heard their MPs' offices being compared to a sort of citizen advice bureau. One of them saying they like to utilise and abuse their MP. Well, one MP who's had enough of being on the receiving end of all that is the long-serving Conservative, Sir Charles Walker. So I think there's been an exponential growth in casework since I joined in 2005. And that's obviously marched hand in hand with email. And then more of it is generated by my colleagues' use of social media as well. I'm not on social media, but as they raise their profile, that tends to generate more casework through, I don't know, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, so on and so forth. Twitter, or X as it's now called. And is there a sense that instead of uh, your MP being your sort of last port of call in a crisis, that people now come to you as as a sort of first port of call? I mean, for some, we're still the last port of call, but I would say the majority of my casework, um, my office's casework, is first port of call. And uh, at times, look, it can just simply overwhelm uh, the operation. And you've seen over the past, well, I've seen over the past 19 years, the staff supporting an MP, the number of staff just grow as well in line with the growth of growth of casework. But obviously, the more staff you have, the more work you generate. So the more staff you want to have. Um, and there's only one trajectory, and that's upwards at the moment, as far as staffing costs are concerned. So is it a problem that's got out of hand? Uh, look, I think... Um, in, look, I, I, I'm ashamed to say it, but uh, when I have people come and work for me, and I'm very lucky, actually, I've had a very settled team for many, many years. But I know it's the case with many colleagues that they're not really interested about how good they are at helping them with legislation and drafting amendments to bills. It's pretty much how many letters and emails can you answer a day? Um, and and that's what you're looking for. And, and I'm not sure that should be the primary role of a member of parliament and a member of parliament's team. Actually, I am sure it absolutely shouldn't be the primary role of a member of parliament and his or her team. So do you think the job of reading, reviewing, amending, passing legislation is being, yeah, and good legislation, which then does what it's supposed to be doing, is being hampered by the uh, uh, the distraction, the overfocus on the the sort of the the flood of casework passing through MPs. I mean, members of Parliament are a very scarce resource. Whatever some of your listeners might might argue otherwise, there's 642 of us who've taken the oath. There's eight more that haven't. Um, and our job is to act as legislators in the legislature. And you know, it does suit gov- the government of the day to have. Um, both their own backbench MPs and opposition backbench MPs, 
um, sort of absolutely buried under casework. So they can't focus on um, holding the government to account and perhaps pointing out where it's going wrong. Now, I'm not saying there's, there's lots of what I do for my constituents that is hugely important. And I'm really glad that they bring their concerns to my attention. But a lot of it really isn't. And and we spend more and more of our time because we're not very good at saying, I'm sorry, that's not my responsibility or, or my job. We spend more and more of our time at dealing with things we shouldn't be dealing with. And yeah, money and time is finite. And our money and time should go to those most in need. So and give, it's not at the moment. Without obviously giving away particular cases, give us some examples of the sorts of things that you are dealing with or MPs are dealing with that, that, that frankly isn't, isn't the job of an MP. We spend a lot of time on neighbour disputes. He said, she said. We spend a lot of time on hedge cutting and tree polluting, uh, parking tickets and parking fines, uh, people not agreeing with a legal ruling or, 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 or a ruling... Um, based according to the rules, for example, people not accepting ombudsman's findings, although the ombudsman should be the last um, port of call. It, it's just I've got people who don't like the way the tarmac's been laid on their driveways. I mean, it is pretty it is pretty relentless. Um, and, you know, I do deal with some incredibly important things. I mean, I I was uh, last year uh, that there was a young woman whose whose partner had been killed in the most tragic and violent event. And she wasn't getting the support she needed um, as a victim of crime because obviously she was very much in love with her partner of many years. And we escalated that up to the point where we had a meeting with a minister and action was taken. That's the stuff I should be dealing with, not dealing with people who don't like the way their workmen have laid tarmac in their driveway. Now, I know that uh, potholes are very important. Planning is very important. But we have elected representatives sitting on local authorities who are accountable for planning decisions in the roads. They should be the ones picking up that part of the workload, not members of parliament. Um, and in terms, we've we've heard from our monthly focus groups on Times Radio. We've asked some voters how they feel about their MPs, and some of them use phrases like "use and abuse them." They're there to be contacted. They're there to, you know, you're there working for us, and we can come to you. Do you yeah. do you feel like you're on the end of that sort of implied threat that you are just there at our beck and call or else? So, so certainly, um, there's a sort of to many emails a very passive, aggressive tone. You better help me, or else. You better agree with my point of view, or else. But again, I want this to be a positive interview, Matt. About a year ago, a nurse wrote to me from a local hospital saying, Charles, these are the things that I see on the ward that I think some small interventions could fix, but they would be very important interventions. And it was just an amazing high quality interaction with a constituent. Yeah. Who wasn't sort of metaphorically po po poking you in the chest but actually had some really thought through sensible observations to make. And what saddens me is that a year after that intervention, it's still the one that stands out most in my mind because it, it, it hasn't been matched in the intervening 12 months by anybody demonstrating that sort of seriousness of thought and willingness to invest their own time um, in, in resolving difficult issues. And Charles, you're one of the dozens of MPs standing down at the next election. Lots of them we've we've spoken to have raised similar things, to, you know, to varying degrees. Is this the bit of the job you'll miss the least? Um, 
It is. Um, it's given me some of my most absolutely rewarding moments. Um, when you do get involved in the sort of stuff you should you should be involved in, and you can see that you've made um, a real difference. But but it is it is it is it is at times overwhelming. And look, Matt, I know that this is the case if you work in a GP surgery. I know this is a case if you work in the classroom. People have become more and more demanding of teachers and doctors and nurses. You talk to paramedics. And, and it's it's it, we've got to address it as a country. So so my concerns are minor. I think, of course, we should have MPs focusing more on the legislating side and the holding government to account side and getting in the really big issues that impact their constituencies. But there's a broader concern here about the way we interact with each other and the expectations we place on teachers. And that there's this idea that if I'm not getting what I want, I just have to shout louder, be more assertive be perhaps more threatening, and then actually they'll back down because it's not worth their while to keep saying no. And you think that's right across society in sort of, like GP, we were just saying, the GP surgeries, teachers, you know, there are yeah. probably lots of people, you know, rest, you know, you see it in restaurants and shops as well. That, that, is it, as a nation, have we got more demanding, more aggressive, less understanding, just assuming that our whole, you know, that the entire world essentially revolves around us? I had a constituent come and see me who was outraged that his uh, doctor's surgery had banned him. And when I interrogated this matter further, he was banned from the surgery because he had assaulted a GP with a blunt instrument. Wow. You know, that's just not on. I have parents write to me because they don't like the fact that a head teacher has had to discipline their child. Um, I, we have a whole section of society that refuses point blank now to take responsibility for their own actions and those that they are responsible for as well. And you know, this is so. So, look, uh, I have loved being an MP, Matt. You know that more than anything. But we, we, we've got to talk about these things because we can't just brush them aside and just, you know, suck it all up. Because what I'm saying is what these people do is they divert scarce resource from the people that really, really do need it. And that should concern us all. GPs get in touch. Yeah, the problem they have with no-shows, because people just can't be bothered to turn up. People who perhaps have a minor football injury, and instead of getting a friend drive them to their doctor's surgery, call an ambulance. And we don't call this out, and we need to start calling it out. Conservative MP Sir Charles Walker says we should start calling out MPs are being asked to do stupid things by their constituents. So we've heard from Sir Charles Walker about the problem as he sees it, but it's an issue that keeps coming up again and again. When I speak to MPs, it's happened a lot recently. Here is the Labour MP, Jess Phillips. Yeah, I've only been an MP for nine years and casework has always been uh, at a very, very high level. It is higher than it's ever been, I would say, post-COVID and uh, things like that. So, uh, And also just because nothing works at the moment, Matt. <laughs> so people complain when nothing works, you get a lot of complaints. Um, but um, yeah, the... I mean, most of my constituents are delightful. and But yeah, there is there is a sense that, you know, like uh, you, you have to do what I say sort of thing in some of the cases. That has always been the case, I have to say. 
but yeah, you, you and I mean, I absolutely delight sometimes in telling people, don't vote for me then. <laughs> I don't want you votes, frankly. Like, you know, when people are rude to me, I don't I don't have to tolerate that or rude to my staff. That is the thing I absolutely cannot tolerate. I can tolerate people being really rude to me. I will not tolerate people treating my staff poorly. Labour MP Jess Phillips says, across party political uh, divides this, and it's come up a lot in the exit interviews I've been doing with MPs who've announced they are going to stand down at the next election. In the most recent one, this is the Conservative MP, Steve Byne. I don't, I don't want this to be a whinge fest, right? No, 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 because no. we are incredibly well paid compared to most of our constituents. It's an incredibly privileged position. You work in one of the best buildings in the world, and uh, you can change people's lives for the better. And that's all that that's all the good stuff. But yeah, I mean, the workload is relentless. It is a seven day a week job. It is high profile. You know, the media are there all the time scrutinising you, which is absolutely your job. Um, but there comes a point where you decide, you know, do I want to continue at that? In intensity or not. I mean, I, I haven't had a holiday without just keeping across messages in the whole time I've been elected because casework is absolutely the bedrock of what you do. And it's sort of the thing that no one ever really talks about with MPs, but, you know, I, I reckon that I've interacted through casework with probably half of the constituents that I've got in Winston and Chandlersford because we've done something for them, whether that be policy or whether that be casework. And people who are diehard Labour supporters will say, you know, I've always voted for you, Steve, because you helped me when mum was sick. Yeah. And that is that means the world to me. That's what the job is about. Because those MPs, Steve Bind, though, standing down at the next election. The impact of COVID has also been felt in MPs' post bags. Here's the former Tory minister, Deanna Davison. I think there is an expectation gap between kind of what people expect from their MPs and what's realistically possible in a, in a week with seven days and 24 hours. Um, we rely on our teams so much. You know, without my team, I couldn't have done five percent of the stuff that i've managed to do um in terms of casework i actually worked here as a researcher back in 2013 i did indeed yeah. yeah um and even then i can see a huge uplift from then to to when i first got elected and then the covid pandemic uh, pandemic just amplified that even more dramatically during those first few weeks of the pandemic when there was the first lockdown and we were all so unsure about what this might mean we had an entire team of seven of us working seven days a week on a rotor system, making sure we were covering the inbox 16 hours a day minimum so that we could stay on top of it all, which is a mad, mad level of casework. Now it was the right thing to do. We wanted to give people as much reassurance as you possibly could, even if a lot of the time we were saying, we're not sure yet when we have an answer, we will get back yeah. to you. Um, and I think people felt that level of reassurance. Um, but it's tough. And I think these kind of campaign emails that you get, you know, if it's a constituent writing to you saying, I'm really worried about this particular thing, yeah. what's your view on it? How can you help? That's one thing. But you get these kind of campaign emails where people have kind of put the name address in tick to box and then suddenly you get 500 emails that all say the same thing with the same wording by people like 38 Degrees, the campaign group. I get it as, as a way of kind of putting on pressure on a particular issue. From their angle, I get it. But as an MP, it's one of those things where you're like, this is sort of distracting me from the main crux of the job. Deanna Davison there, and you can hear her full exit interview later this month. Lots of you getting in touch from different professions, all saying that what in particular Charles Walker was saying uh, rings true. Martin says, Hear, hear, Sir Charles. My teacher wife would echo exactly what he said. The daily tyranny of rude, entitled parents and their children has ruined the job. Uh, someone else who was a uh, GP says, as a now thankfully retired GP, I completely agree demand has escalated over the years alongside rudeness. The incessant demand is what finally drove me 
to retiring. Uh, then someone else, absolutely spot on from Charles Walker. We see this as local councillors too. We need people to take responsibility for their lives and communities and not just demand something must be done by someone else, says Councillor P. Keating. Well, let's find out what it's like then if you're working with an MP dealing with this rising tide of casework. Jenny Simmons is uh, works for an MP in Parliament and also chairs the GMB union branch for MP staff in Westminster. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Matt. Morning. Um, does what you've been hearing ring true with what you're dealing with every day? And is there more and more of it? Yes, I think for my members in Parliament, it's definitely something that maybe they feel isn't known enough to the public that casework has massively increased in a lot of the time when you're interacting with your MP you're actually interacting with a staff member and you don't realise um, so they're behind the scenes working on all the cases and my members I asked them this morning some of them about increases in the workload and someone told me that they're the increase of um, cases since 2020 has been a, has doubled, basically. So some of them have gone up significantly. It obviously varies on the area. Some MPs, like Jess Phillips, represents a Birmingham constituency. Some, you know, inner city constituencies will have a lot of casework. Maybe for some MPs, they think, oh, what's this about? You know, we don't have very much because we're, a, you know, a more rural seat. But it is um, a lot of pressure on staff. And these staff are typically the lowest paid staff in Parliament. They're often... Um, maybe in their early 20s, and they will be earning between 21000 and maybe 28000 or upwards if you're lucky, but a lot of them are on the lower end of the scale. And to be honest with you, I absolutely hate to hear from MPs that their staff, their teams are working 24-7. I absolutely hate to hear that um, because that is just not what staff are paid for. They're paid, like I said, in the low 20s, um, they're contracted usually to work maybe 37 hours or maybe 40 at the max, but they're ending up being pressured, well, pressured obviously by the workload, but also maybe expected by their bosses to be working 16-hour days, um, seven days a week. I, I think that's appalling. And I know that lots of MPs would like to pay their staff more, and it's not always um, – it's often, you know, they have to deal with the budgets that they're given by the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority – but we are campaigning as a trade union to bring pay parity for caseworkers so that they earn the same, they have the same pay bands as research staff. So I'm a researcher, I'm not a caseworker, but you know, there's this kind of dividing line that, mm -hmm. that seems to say, oh, research staff are worth more, their their work is more valuable than <laughs> what caseworkers do. So we'll pay researchers more or office managers more. Whereas actually, as you as as we've been talking about, the work that caseworkers do is very uh it's very stressful, it's demanding, it's pressurising, it's often, you know, people need things done immediately. And these often young, low-paid staff are expected to be experts in, you know, housing law or immigration, welfare, all these very complicated um, areas, which in other charities, you know, you just focus on one specific policy area. Our caseworkers in Parliament are expected to know how to handle all of these different cases and they are paid far less than their peers in Parliament. So we're going to carry on pushing for caseworker pay parity. But also, I think it's really important that MPs do um, take responsibility for making sure that their staff don't overwork. Yeah. And they're not paid, you know, they, they, they're not paid upwards of, you know, towards 90 grand to be a public presence all the time. They are office workers who are doing their best, but should not be expected to meet that level. 
And I suppose you're so right as well that some of those complicated cases, you know, immigration cases, legal cases, where actually the intervention of an MP might make a difference. You know, the the, the caseworkers working on those know that that's what I'll be doing, not dealing with some of the less important cases which have been highlighted. We've actually, while we've been on air, we've uh, someone who works an MP, who's asked me not to name them for, for reasons that will become apparent, uh, worked in Parliament for more than, uh, uh, more than a decade, uh, has been in touch saying, I could provide a backlog of stories, but I had one only the, this week where a constituent's booked an appointment and came to see me to complain that her son had not been picked for his school basketball team. She wanted the MP, to write to the school querying their selection policy for the team. Over the years, I've also been asked to prescribe Viagra. It's also very common that estranged couples come to see us asking us to act on each other's behalf. Obviously, we can't tell them their partner has been to see us, which can cause all manner of difficulties. Um, Finally, Jenny, when I was... Because we've been talking about uh, doing this uh, feature this week, and I was in Parliament, and I knew, I knew I'd spoken to Charles Walker and what he was going to say. And I mentioned this to another MP, and they said, every so often there's a sort of push, you know, we need more, we should increase the budget for caseworkers. And they said, this MP said, that's the last thing we want, because we have more people, maybe even more caseworkers, we'll just raise the expectations even more. Um, is that a vicious cycle, or do you think we do need more resources for the work that the MP staff are doing? Yeah, I don't really understand that logic, to be honest, to say that, um, more staff budget and more staff would attract more casework. I think often more staff in Parliament means that MPs feel that they can ask, they take on more projects mm. and do more parliamentary work because they have more capacity. But actually, we want to see the caseworkers paid more appropriately for the work they're doing. So using that budget to pay those existing staff more, pay for training so that they can learn the skills and, and also so that they'll stick around longer. And that's much better for the public to have their staff, you know, to have MP staff sticking around longer. Um, and I did also ask my members, I asked them about some of the ridiculous casework requests because I heard some of them earlier. Um, I had a submission about someone saying an, uh, a constituent had complained about a pasta salad that they got from Boots. Um, <laughs> someone had been emailing asking the MP to find my wife. Um, someone asked them to get them an appointment with Joe Biden. And likewise, similar to the example you just used, um, one staff member said that she's repeatedly experienced um, men coming into the constituency surgeries asking for the MPs to tell their wives to stop being rude to them. Um, wow. So yeah, we're not paid enough for that and it's not <laughs> our job. And we do need an increase of budget, but it's so that we can pay the existing staff more yeah, and keep yeah. them around. I suppose, yeah, because if they keep changing, that makes life even more difficult. Uh, Jenny's really uh, fascinating. Thanks so much for that. It's Jenny Simmons there, uh, who works an MP and uh, chairs the GMB union branch at MPs staff. Uh, interesting counterpoint to all of this. Kevin's been in touch saying, what MPs forget is the Citizens Advice Bureau, which someone said that they treated their MP like Citizens Advice, uh, is reliant on local authority grants, which councils have cut owing to bigger priorities. Give citizens advice, secure government funding, and the MPs might get less casework. And that actually is a point that Jess Phillips was saying, that part of the reason why they're overwhelmed is because large parts of the state, whether it is schools or hospitals or potholes or whatever it is, all citizens advice, all local government, their budgets have been squeezed, and so there are more problems to end up on the, uh, on the, the, the desks of MPs. Do let us know what you think your MP is for. You can email me, matt at times.radio. Don't forget, if you're a Times subscriber, a bonus episode will appear in your feed. Just link your Apple account to your Times account and the magic will happen. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye.